Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Our values can be very helpful in guiding us about important decisions. At the same time, I think we have to be careful that we don't jump to our values in volatile uh, environments and assume other people share our values. Ned assumed that King Robert would appreciate his honesty when he argued with him in front of the small council about assassinating the young pregnant woman. That's not what happened. So we need to understand our values recognize the importance of them and finding alignment and work we do. We also need to be careful that we don't assume everyone around us has the same values. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with Iman Zabi, founder of Terrain.io and Brian Burkhart, founder and chief word guy of Square Planet, then do go check them out. But only after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest today, Bruce Craven, a writer, public speaker and educator with over 30 years of experience in executive education. He's a partner at Craven Leadership and an associate adjunct professor at the Columbia Business School, where he teaches his popular MBA, EMBA elective, Leadership Through Fiction. His leadership book, Win or Die, Leadership Secrets from Game of Thrones, was published in 2019. He has also written a poetry collection, Buena Suerte, in Red Glitter, and his new novel, Sweet Bride, will be published in 2021. In our discussion today, Bruce talked to me about what lessons there are in fictional stories for leadership. We talked about the importance of empathy in leadership. And we talked about how our values affect our leadership and how to elicit our values. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Bruce Craven. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast all the way from Desert Hot Springs, which is in California, the USA, Bruce Craven, who is an adjunct associate professor at Columbia Business School. He's the uh, a partner at Craven Leadership, as well as author of the book, Win or Die, Leadership Secrets from the Game of Thrones. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Bruce. It's a real privilege to have you here as my guest. 
Thank you, Jurgen. That was a wonderful introduction, and I'm really uh, pleased and excited to be with you. It's um, a hot day outside out here in Southern California, but a beautiful day, and uh, this is just an exciting moment for me, so thanks. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to dig into this today. Now, Bob Coolhan, who was our guest on episode 366 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested that we have a conversation with you, Bruce, and introduced us, so big hello to Bob. Absolutely. And Bob, um, I'll just take a quick aside for those who haven't heard his talk yet, but Bob's a very inspiring guy. We've had him participate in work we've done at the Columbia Business School. I've hired him to do other uh, teaching and projects. He's a very talented leader, very inspirational guy, an improv person who's trained in the creative arts of improv. And I would uh, encourage everyone to check out his your talk with him. Yeah, yeah. Episode 366 that was, and we had a lot of fun on that. Lots of improv happening there as well. All right. Now, I have to be upfront here and say I'm not a Game of Thrones fans fan. In fact, I haven't even watched a single episode. <laughs> but my my take on it from reading some of your book is that essentially there's a king who sits on the Iron Throne who gets assassinated without having a leadership succession plan in place. And so all the candidates for that leadership succession kind of manipulate and and engineer, try to engineer their way onto that throne. And and that's kind of probably doing the show a total injustice because I believe there's about 10 series. <laughs> well, that was actually very elegant and on target. It um, takes place in this mythical time. It's an epic fantasy written by George R. R. Martin. Um, the books are incredible and they're dense and they're thick and it's a history that's it's, of course, fictional, but um, is really consumes you and pulls readers in. And then, of course, when they adapt it to a show, they did an amazing job at HBO. And when this uh, current narrative starts, you're right, there's a man named King Robert, and he took the throne in what was called Robert's Rebellion. And he's traveled to the north to persuade a former brother-in-arms to come down and be his right-hand man, what they call the Hand of the King. And so this man up in the north decides with his wife to make the decision that he will leave his responsibilities in the north and go to where the Iron Throne is in capital city of King's Landing. So it would be the equivalent of traveling, say, in the United States to Washington, D.C. And this man, Ned Stark, is heroic. He's proven himself in battle. He's a good leader in the environment that he's from, but he's not particularly well-adapted for the challenges he's going to face in leadership when he gets to this capital city. And part of that is what you were referring to. Um, the king, while very powerful and brave and a great warrior, has a lot of personal flaws, and there are people around him um, kind of maneuvering uh, against his good fortune, right? And so our man from the north named Ned Stark is thrust into that very volatile, dangerous environment. Hmm. Hmm. Which, um, you know, my, my question for you to start the conversation off really is how did this whole idea, because when you put it like that, it's kind of like, you know, you can see the parallels very clearly with, with a business leadership role where, you know, somebody assumes the leadership, they bring in their, their trusted um, allies to be lieutenants, they put them into leadership roles that perhaps they're not well prepared for. And and then, of course, things happen. So how did this idea that fictional narratives and fictional characters could form that basis for leadership lessons start with you? 
Yeah. Um, I've worked at Columbia Business School since almost getting straight out of graduate school, where I studied poetry. I have a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry, and I was working to write a novel. This was in you know, a long time ago, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I started working in executive education, which is a division of the business school, partially just out of a need for a job, and partially because I suddenly realized how exciting it was. So jump cut about 12 years later, um, and I'd had one novel published, I'd had a film made, and I'd written a co-written a business case with a Columbia professor, a great colleague of mine named Paul Ingram. And in the writing of that case, it, it kept occurring to me there ought to be a way to bring fiction, you know, the, this this craft that professional writers devote their time to, um, and professional screenwriters and professional playwrights, that there ought to be a way to bring that into teaching leadership. And it wasn't that the idea kind of sprung full-blown from my mind. I had seen a professor at Columbia, I'd seen two professors use Shakespeare in that capacity. Um, I didn't know that there was a professor at Harvard who was already starting to do that, so um, I was unaware of that. But I, I had this idea, and I pitched it to the dean, um, and he encouraged me, actually, at the time. This is now about 13 years ago, so the previous dean. But I lived in California, and so the question was, how was I going to actually make this happen, teaching all the time in, in Columbia every week when I lived in California. And long story short, um, an opportunity came up. I seized it. I spent about two years flying back and forth every week, in addition to a lot of the other travel I did. Um, and the ideas really took, took hold. And I think what it was is because the narratives, to get back to Game of Thrones, and Shakespeare for that matter, the narratives are so compelling and the stakes are so high that for the students, it's very engaging. I mean, you go to your job and it's competitive and someone you perceive of as being an ally may betray you, but hopefully in your life that doesn't mean you'll have your head cut off. In Game of Thrones, that could mean your head is cut off or your children are murdered or, you know, so the stakes are so high, it becomes a very compelling landscape to engage yourself with and with your classmates. Hmm. Yeah, that that's fascinating. And I mean, often I look at, at some shows and I, I get prompted that, hey, I look at a character and I think, I wonder what, what would have happened had they made a different decision. So that's kind of the questions that you're asking, except in a much more structured way, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. So if you go back to this this leader in the North named Ned Stark, his official title is Lord Eddard Stark, but he's called informally Ned. When he travels to King's Landing, the capital city, he he does a couple things. He brings his daughters with him, assuming that one of them might marry uh, the king's son, and that's a ill ill made decision. Um, he thinks his younger daughter, who's kind of tomboyish, will benefit and become more uh, traditionally, you know, feminine, I guess. And, in the capital city, and she doesn't. She becomes much more of a warrior. And then he makes some other uh, bad decisions. He trusts the wrong people, and he acts too aggressively in a way that he feels is morally right without being able to evaluate the true kind of dangers of the environment he's in. And by the way, when, when, I, when I first watched the show, I completely identified with it. I think I would very likely have made the same decision. So it's not about judging the characters. It's more about finding compelling characters and then extracting from them 
some key ideas that you can use to remind yourself when you're in a similar dynamic. Maybe someone's offered you a job and you, you're not sure you really want to take it. You know, it's probably not the perfect thing for you, but you feel compelled. You start thinking about it through the lens of Ned Stark. You may decide that that's an opportunity to wait on. Or you may decide you're going to take it, but you need to be far more prevention-minded against the risks of that role. Hmm. With, I mean, let, let's explore that character a little bit more, I guess, because you've given us a bit, a little bit of a background and, and a, a scenario in which he's found himself in and some of the decisions he's made and, and also painted a little bit of a picture of the values there. The, um, how, what are some of the lessons we can take from that into a leadership role? So let's say there's a situation where um, we've been offered this role that means traveling somewhere else it means relocating um, ourselves and then there's the question do we relocate our family or do we leave our family where they are and and all those questions that come up what, what are some of the lessons that we learn from that and that we can start to assess how we how we make our decisions here yeah so I should preface this by saying I started using Game of Thrones in this elective I teach at Columbia Business School to MBAs and to executive MBAs, and I teach c components of it to senior executives too. But um, I taught it for about three years before I brought in Game of Thrones. And one of the interesting things that I really benefited from is that the students at Columbia Business School are ex exceptionally intelligent. Um, and so I was extracting a lot of great ideas from them as I was, you know, quote, teaching the class. So uh, one thing that many of them were very good to very quick to point out was how Ned Stark really didn't evaluate the environment. He really didn't sit back and try to recognize what his core strengths are, what this, what the job description was really requiring. Um, he didn't have clear communication with the king. Remember, they were... They knew each other when they were much younger, when they were warriors. There's sort of this collegial uh, friendship kind of around being brothers in arms, but they don't actually, Ned doesn't actually push him to be specific on what his job description is. So they have all this goodwill. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, uh, hmm. yourself and myself, have been in that kind of situation where you're yeah. going into a working relationship. You have a lot of goodwill with each other, but you're not being specific on the role. And so at a certain moment, um, going back to, to Game of Thrones, the king is being encouraged, King Robert is being encouraged to send an assassin to kill a young woman who's pregnant in the continent of Essos because she is the daughter of the previous king of Westeros. So if she has an heir, that heir could be a threat to King Robert's rule. So King Robert is strongly considering sending this assassin, and Ned gets in a very public argument with him in front of uh, what's called the small council, you know, his group of different advisors. So Ned, following his moral belief in, you know, the fact that it's incorrect to send an assassin to kill a pregnant young woman, um, triggers such a violent argument with his boss that the two of them aren't there to support each other for a while as other more manipulative foes get into action. So to pull it back to, again, to our own uh, dynamics as leaders going into a new situation, we need to get clarity on what 
the boss or the organization is expecting from us. And in Ned's case, he felt he was expected to be truthful and to operate um, with complete transparency, even if he was in front of other people. But of course, the king felt his real responsibility was to be loyal, with Ned's responsibility was to be loyal to the king. So if they had dug a little deeper and got clarity on that, um, they might have been able to support each other when there was a lot of threats around them, as opposed to arguing with each other, pulling away, not being able to communicate with each other, and then suffering from being vulnerable to their enemies. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think what you touched on there is is a bit of a clash of values. And and I know you talk in some of the articles that I've read, you talk quite a bit about values and understanding values and alignment of values. So expand on that for us a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So if you think of King Robert and Ned, again, there's certain values you can be fairly sure that they share. You know, they both feel uh, the importance of courage. They were both great warriors. But it's clear looking at how King Robert behaves, courage is his top value. So even as the king of Westeros, he's trying to organize ongoing battles and fights, one-on-one fights, almost imagine like a UFC competition, you know, an ultimate fighting competition. He's trying to create these dynamics where he can fight younger warriors simply to prove his courage. Now, he's already the king of the continent, right? His, his real responsibility probably ought to be in leadership or maybe in, if you want to put it in values, maybe a responsibility to his constituents or maybe um, his duty, you know, D-U-T-Y, his duty uh, as the leader of the organization and the leader of the kingdom. Um, so courage is very high in his hierarchy. So we all have these personal values, but that doesn't mean we order them in the same way. Ned values courage, but he's much more committed to what's the honorable thing to do. And the honorable thing is not to send an assassin after a young pregnant woman, right? So we can sometimes be in a dynamic. I, I said earlier how we can have goodwill with people, but not be transparent and clear about what real job descriptions are, what our tech. And it doesn't have to be a boss to a direct report. We could be working with colleagues. Mm have all kinds of goodwill, but if we're not being transparent about what we actually expect from each other, we can make a lot of assumptions. And that's what's happening here. And because their values are so close, they feel like they're being honest with each other, but in fact, they're triggering, um, Ned is triggering a lot of anger with the king, and that puts both of them in a very vulnerable place. So I think one of the real takeaways from that is when any of us, again, we don't have to be in the world is violent as Game of Thrones, but it feels good to do what our values, our personal values tell us mm. to do. And that can be an incredibly uh, powerful source of guiding our decision making. I'll give you one quick example. Um, not that long ago, uh, a colleague suggested that, I, that he might recommend me for a particular administrative leadership job at Columbia Business School. I had thought about that possibility for a number of years, and I knew it wasn't really in alignment with my values, that, that I respected the people that were great at that job, but that it wouldn't be a fulfilling role for me. So when, in fact, he suggested I take that role, or I, sorry, I apply for that role, my wife um, thought it was a brilliant idea. 
And I quickly, you know, said, well, it would be for someone else, but for me, it's not the right decision. So our values can be very helpful in guiding us about important decisions. At the same time, I think we have to be careful that we don't jump to our values in volatile uh, environments and assume other people share our values. Ned assumed that King Robert would appreciate his honesty when he argued with him in front of the small council about assassinating a young pregnant woman. That's not what happened. So we need to understand our values, recognize the importance of them, and finding alignment in work we do. We also need to be careful that we don't assume everyone around us has the same values. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, a, there's some really good points there. I think the the other thing for me is that many people are not really that conscious of their values. I mean, they live by them. Um, they have they have very strong values, but they're not necessarily conscious of the values or how how they behave as a response to that value, and also what hierarchy of values they have so that right. if you know there's a conflict between two values in terms of a decision to be made or some behavior to engage in they will default to what's the most important value for yeah. them and pe people aren't necessarily conscious of that they do a lot of that is unconscious and so how do you as a leader become a lot more self-aware about your own values so that as a start point, you can say, well, okay, I, I know these are my values and this is the hierarchy of my values. This one's more important than that one. Uh, and and I know that for somebody else, they may not have all these values or if they do have them all, they may be in a different order of importance. Yeah. Um, I think we should be clear too that that we all have values that you know we've sort of learned from our, uh, you know, our religions, our governments, our our organization probably has some declared values that are important. I mean, what we're talking about a little more here, which I, I know you know, is sort of our personal individual values, right? And for me, I'll take you back 20 years ago when it was just started, it was just being introduced um, in the executive education part, department at Columbia Business School. And I was the guinea pig. So a coach, because it was very new in executive coaching 20 years ago, an executive coach ask me a series of questions. And, and this is basically the process. Through being asked a series of questions, you know, what kind of things do you like to do? You know, are you whatever? Are you a surfer? Okay, what, what word, what sort of abstract concept do you feel is fulfilled by surfing? Oh, I feel um, peace, right? Or I feel adventure, you know, mm -hmm. or I feel serenity. Uh, oh, you're a skier. So what, you know, oh, at work, are you into IT? What part of the organization are you normally drawn to? Is you drawn to sales? What do you feel like when you're working in sales? Oh, you know, it's, it's a sense of connection with the organization and with the customers. It's, it's a, a sense of community, right? So we have these words that capture these sort of abstract words that capture the feeling, the good feelings we have from different things we do. And then the coach will help you think through how to prioritize those. I, mean, I, I talk about it. I have a chapter where I talk about it, you know, the first chapter of my book. Um, and there's different ways to do it. When I was coached, it, it took the coach, I think, a while to, to help me get to where I had these values. And I went, remember, I was up in the mountains north of New York City, and I went walking down by this lake, and I thought, well, you know, okay, was that worth it? Are these going to be helpful? And within weeks, I was recognizing 
work that I wanted to do. I was recognizing jobs that maybe I would just have to kind of suck it up and get it done for a while, but it wasn't going to be fulfilling to me. You start to see how you can guide yourself through those values and through the hierarchy of the values. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's a great exercise. I mean, I've I've done it quite a, f a few times for myself, and it doesn't always come out in the same hierarchy. And sometimes there's different values that pop up depending on what what kind of environment you're in or what situation you might be in right then and there in in that time of your life. And I've also done it with other people, and and usually there's uh, people that haven't done it before. There's a like wow <laughs> response, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's very it's fun it's fun to teach because you can see people lights going off as connections are made. Oh, this is why I'm always drawn to this kind of work depending on, you know, which organization I'm in or this is why I find this sort of sport or hobby fulfilling and it can be, you know, as as we're talking about, it can be just a great guide to recognize how to get our life as aligned as we possibly can. Now, often situations don't allow that and we're pushed to do things that maybe aren't exactly what we want to do, but at least we have the perspective to, to understand it. Hmm. All right. Now, one of the, one of the things I'm a little curious about, and um, I'll let my inner cynic come out a little bit here because the, I mean, if you take something like Game of Thrones and, and, you know, there's, many of many other kind of series or stories that are very similar to that have the same dynamics and basically there's a whole lot of power games at play power dynamics there's um, shifting loyalties and shifting alliances and there's scheming and trickeries and often scheming and trickeries and lies are kind of rewarded you know the people that are the the nastiest humans end up um, winning out in this and um, sometimes when I watch shows where that's the outcome I think well hopefully real life isn't always like that but then every so often things go on and you know we've got a situation right now in Australia but I won't go there in the um, political scene where the sense is you know the the nastiest people rise to the top and are successful so what um what do you say to that and how do you like how as a as a person of goodwill yeah. how do you suggest you navigate those power dynamics as as a leader yeah there's 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 different ways i want to jump into that i'm going to i'm going to do this there's there's a book that i've been using since i began this course um whatever it was 12 years ago leadership through fiction um 10 years ago there's a, a novel from the 40s called What Makes Sammy Run? And it's set initially in New York City, um, in the newspaper business, and then it jumps to Hollywood. And it's, of all the books, films, plays that I've used, it's the one that every student, I think, connects with. And in a way, it's a, it's a parallel to what you see in Game of Thrones. Like in Game of Thrones, you see a lot of very uh, self-centered, uh, manipulative, dishonest people achieve a certain level of, of very real success. And we could draw parallels to political situations where, you know, being transparent and authentic and accountable and moral and good and is, doesn't always seem to pay out as well as being mm. manipulative and, and self-interested, etc. Um, 
in what makes Sammy run, uh, I don't want to entirely give it away, but there's a, a young boy that's grown up in the slums of New York City, and he's very willing to do whatever it takes to get to the top. And his name's Sammy. And so when we talk about him in the class, it's, it's very interesting because sometimes people will admit, you know, I've got a little of Sammy in me. You know, and, and often, almost every time people say, oh, I worked with a Sammy. And so and I'm going to get back to kind of your question. We try to use that to really analyze, are there moments when thinking like Sammy might be justified? And I'll give you one. There's a great moment early in the novel where he's basically just a newsboy and he cons his way into a phone call with a Hollywood producer promises a script that he didn't even write. Someone else wrote, but he's read it and essentially catalyzes a whole Hollywood career out of lying, manipulating, <laughs> stealing the other person's script. So I'm never, because it wouldn't be my approach to life, I'm not going to argue that the stealing of the script or the even the lying is what's an extractable takeaway. Now, other people might, you know, in the, in the late 80s, that book, What Makes Sammy Run, was used all the time in Hollywood to emphasize a certain kind of approach to the film business. And they were really arguing, be just like Sammy. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would never do that because that's not how I approach the world. I'm not naive enough to think other people won't, but that's not what I would do. And, and yet I'm open to discussing that in the class and occasionally we'll have someone who'll make a strong argument in favor of that. But generally the real takeaway is, are there moments that we can channel the, the hunger or the uh, confidence of a certain leader, even if we don't want to embrace their whole uh, character trajectory. So in Sammy, there's an element where he just believes, why not me? You know, why can't I be the one that succeeds? And he has very little doubts and he's uninhibited. If he sees the moment, he goes at it. Now, I'm sure you and I could sit and have a whole talk about politics and, and about how why not me, um, uninhibited, uh, you know, why those can be very dangerous behaviors if they're out of control in a political environment. In this leadership class and in and using fiction, it can be very useful to go, hey, wait a second, I'm going to get on the phone with a potential uh, employer next week. I want to be more like the Sammy that gets on that phone call and persuades the uh, employer to hire me than some other character who'd be filled with doubts. Right. Mm. I want to believe that I can make the deal happen. So in my class, even when we're talking about leaders that I would consider um, lower on the moral scale, um, the question is, what can we take from it that we can fit into our, you know, ideally moral approach to life, but it can still be a use, useful tactic or strategy? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and I know. I mean, I, I certainly have this emotional reaction when I'm watching a show or, or reading a novel, a story, and there's the bad guy, right? And and the bad guy, usually you don't connect really well with them and you think they're the villain, um, don't like that person. And, and often, you know, you get this effect where if it's a, if it's a film or a, a play that, uh, I mean, there are certain actors that, do villains really well. That seems to be their skill set. And they're always playing villains. So you kind of associate the actor who was a you know person for themselves with a bad person. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I but, think it's it's an exciting. First of all, it's an exciting role to play the bad guy because yeah, yeah. The, the, and, and I think increasingly we see in a lot of these longer um, TV dramas. I mean, H, uh, Game of Thrones is the one we're talking about now, but this is true for a lot of them. We see that often the bad guy doesn't stay the bad guy or the bad woman doesn't stay mm. the bad woman the whole way through. We start to see the more human moments. And, and in a way, I think there's something very – if we were to pick – if either of us were to pick the political leader that we find the least appealing and we feel pretty strongly in our judgment over, we would be better if we could imagine them as being the hero in their own – hero's journey because that'll give us a sense of under of empathizing with them and and i don't mean empathizing with them to approve of their behavior i mean empathizing with them to understand what's driving them and then also to understand why they can be effective in that particular you know political theater right i mean in the world of Mm -hmm. politics so i think often um empathy is a very powerful skill for every leader and when it comes to people that enrage you you know whether it's in a political atmosphere in your professional atmosphere um on a tv show if you can empathize with them you can see why they think they're heroic and that can give you a better sense of what really drives them and and i think a better sense of how to confront them Hmm. yeah i think you've touched on a whole range of things here that i'd love to explore further the I mean, the hero's journey is something that I'm, I'm really, um, I love the hero's journey and, and understanding that from the point of view of people's behavior and people's journey and applying it to a whole range of different things. The other thing you touched on there was empathy, um, which I think is something we should explore some more. And the, the other one I wanted to comment on the, uh, you said, you know, if somebody really enrages you, I mean, we look at the world through our eyes, through our values, through our experience. And and so what we see is not necessarily reality. It's just what I see. And often if you have a very powerful reaction to something, it's kind of there's something inside you that um, has triggered that. And if somebody else is enraging you, that you know, I often ask the question, what is it about that that has me enraged? And and what part of me is mirroring that? So it may very well be, you know, for example, um, I mean, a simple example, I uh, have clients that procrastinate over certain things. And when they procrastinate over it, I get very frustrated. I say, well, why do they keep procrastinating over that? Why don't they just get it done and, and move on? You know? And then I sort of reflect that back and think, well, what are all the things I'm procrastinating over? You know, I'm a master at procrastination. So you know, I'm getting frustrated with something in somebody else, but the frustration really deep down unconsciously is with me. Yeah, and I and I, I if I can jump in, I think one one thing I've been working on that I believe is right in in alignment with what you're talking about is um, we all fall into this instinct to judge, right? Mm. And so one of the things I teach in my MBA course, and I also do it through my consulting company, is there's a diagnostic called HBDI, and you answer 120 questions, and you get sort of a, a response on how your preferences and communication and and work fall compared to sort of and you can compare it to other people right so um, to give you a quick way of understanding that i'm my background is as a writer and i'm very much on the right side of the hbdi model like i'm very 
interested in people and emotions and just big picture conceptual things. My wife is a chartered financial analyst by training, and so she's very linear, very analytical, very process oriented. And we're running, we're, we're, we're married, we have kids, and we have, and we're running a consulting company together. So, so the obvious advantages are that we both get excited by doing the kinds of work that the other person tries to avoid. The challenges are that we're often seeing, and this is getting to your point about kind of how we all see the world from one lens. We both see the world through a lens that the other person doesn't, and we keep bringing that perception to the other person. And, you know, if I go to her and talk over and over and over about the importance of some future problem uh, project that's going to be really conceptually fascinating and going to result in some really new creative thing, She's thinking about well, what process do we need to put in place to get that to happen, and what data are you actually bringing to me to show that this idea is really that good? And so we can really clash, right? And then the clash can be exacerbated by judging the other person. Oh, well, they're you know they don't even understand what's important about life anyway. I mean, when we jump to these huge extreme yeah, judgments, yeah. and you don't have to be married to your business partner to do that, right? You can do that all the time in the work environment. So for me. And I, we talk about this a lot in my class. One thing that I'm really trying to work on personally, because I think it's just smart, is to not get overwhelmed by that kind of judgment. Um, and to take it back even to the political environment. If you're watching someone that you really disagree with politically, at what point is the rage and the judgment energizing and helping you to do something productive? And at one point, is it just feeding your anger and useless, right? And I think in general, anger is, a, and in these moments, clearly where it's important, but I think we all need to lead ourselves to be a little less judgmental so we can actually build stronger relationships with the right people to pursue our goals and, you know, achieve our dreams. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, the setting aside judgment. And, and you talked about empathy earlier. So I think, you know, having empathy with another person's worldview or another person's style of doing things or way of looking at things um, does require setting aside judgment, right? And it, and it doesn't yeah. mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean you have to, sorry, I'm interrupting. It doesn't no, mean you have to yeah, agree yeah. with it. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. You know, you might at the end of the day go, I completely disagree with their approach to, you know, mm. leadership within our organization. But if we can control, if we can at least control the judgment enough that we can think more clearly my belief is we're going to be more effective in whatever steps we decide to take to pursue our own goals within, you know, an organization to compete. You know, we're going to compete better if we can actually step back from just seeing white rage <laughs> going, to, going across our face. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you talked earlier about um, in the Game of Thrones and the story of Ned and the King that, you know, there, there was the communication wasn't clear. It wasn't clear communication. And I think setting aside judgment and particularly, you know, if it's a work colleague or a business partner or, a, a you know, a spouse, even more important, it, that um, having really clear communication and having meaningful conversations. I mean, I like to not just, you know, talk to somebody about the weather or something like that. I like to have a meaningful conversation because that's that's the way I think I can learn from other people and and also it gives me the opportunity perhaps to contribute to them in some way 
and to be able to have a meaningful conversation with somebody doesn't require that I agree with what they say, but at the same time, it does require setting judgment aside so that we can have a meaningful conversation and yet still disagree. Yeah. And if you're looking at it from, let's say, a, a leadership perspective, which we are, and, and, and even and a business perspective, if you go back to Game of Thrones and to season one, um, Ned, and I don't think I have to be too worried about spoilers at this point because the show's been <laughs> over for two years, but Ned confronts the king's wife about some stuff Ned has learned. And he misjudges her completely. I mean, he assumes because she's female that she's not going to have the courage or the anger or the focus on her own success that he thinks a man would have. And so he goes into that situation judging in a totally different way, right? Like he, mm. he confronts her judging her for not being really the warrior that he is or that the king is simply because she's, she's not carrying, wearing armor and carrying a sword. And so he, in his efforts, his misguided efforts to help her, he actually puts himself in a vulnerable position. So part of it is um, we need to recognize the strength of people around us. We need to recognize their potential and not judge them um, because it's in our own best interest to, to, to succeed, right? Like if he had been able to be a little less judgmental and a little more open to trying to listen to her and understand from her, he might have found a way, I'm not saying it's it's 100% sure, but he might have found a way to build some common ground and move forward without facing the horrible fate that he faces. And so again, to put it in our environment professionally, um, we can often fall into judging a lot of people, simplifying the, their complexity and then not even giving them the information they might need to create, you know, a win-win situation with us, right? So like your, in, your instinct to try to have real conversations with people is also the instinct to build a real network that can really support mm. each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, I mean, we, we touched on that, you know, there's power dynamics at play and, and sometimes the people that perhaps uh, don't share our values and don't behave the way we we like to behave uh, more successful than we'd wish them to be in an ideal world. But the, I guess the, the one question, and I know you talk about this a little bit in the book. It's it's the difference between leading for the sake or, or the desire to have power for the sake of oneself. Like it's you know good for my ego to be powerful, or I'd, I'd love to have I love to be the king where everybody kowtows um, to me, or the idea of the servant-based leadership. So you know I have I believe I'm a leader to other people because I can help other people become leaders as well. So talk to us a little bit about the difference there and and what lessons might be in in the fictional stories in Game of Thrones yeah, um, around that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, George R. R. Martin, the, the writer of, of the books, is a huge fan of, of history and goes back and draws on, you know, the War of the Roses, draws on a lot of different historical situations. Um, and again, I don't know exactly how, how he, all the things he drew on, but what you do see in the narrative is that some people that pursue 
only power for only their own self-interest achieve very real success for a period of time. It's at a great cost. I mean, they often don't have strong relationships with other people. Their only uh, allies are people that who they're paying, you know. Um, and what you do see in Game of Thrones is that the people that are able to look past their own self-interest and care about other people, you know, to, to be motivated to help other people are the people that find the strength to be resilient against a huge amount of adversity. Um, and to give you a, a real-life example of that that's also drawn from, from the class I teach, the first book I assign the students um, is, is not fiction, it's nonfiction. And it's the autobiography, the first autobiography that Frederick Douglass wrote after he escaped from slavery in the United States. And so, for those who don't know, um, you know, we had slavery was a big part of this country up through the middle of the 19th century. And Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. He managed to escape. And then when he escaped, his focus was to become a public speaker and rally the country around, you know, the ugliness and the horror of that element of our political political system. So what I'm, where I'm going with this is that he could have escaped and just pursued his own comfort and his own self-interest, but he chose to put himself continually at risk to try to change the world. Um, and, in, and in Game of Thrones, you see, you see parallels of that. You see um, the, the Stark daughters do some of that. Again, I don't want to get in too far into the show, but hmm. see that in a way with Daenerys Targaryen, who is the young pregnant woman I was talking about before. Um, so I think fiction can be a great way for us to look at that question. And I don't think there's always going to be an easy answer. There's always going to be people that have acquired wealth and power and numerous advantages and have done it without being particularly focused on anyone around them but themselves. I mean, that is the nature of the world we live in. It's going to happen. Um, to me, what's important is making the decision about how I want to live my life. And I know that I, there's things I want to do. I want to make sure my family's taken care of. I want to make sure we have money to repay, repair the car. or to, You know what I mean? There's, there's things that I want just as much as anyone else. But it is energizing to be able to get out of your own self-interest and think about helping other people. And I, in the business world where I've worked with so many senior executives, um, you see that all the time, that, that of course their salary matters and of course benefits matter. But what also matters is being able to know that their work has some value beyond just, you know, their paycheck. Hmm. Yeah, I think the, the Frederick Douglass one is a really interesting example because the thing that, that uh, I thought of immediately when you brought that up was courage. And that leaders like that, you know, courage is such an important part of that. Because if my understanding of, of the history is correct, then um, slaves that escaped slavery, um, when if they got captured, they were at risk of being put to death. And and so you know, he was taking this huge risk by getting on public stages and speaking, and. Absolutely. You know, in doing that because he believed so strongly that he could make a difference by, you know, convincing other people that slavery was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was that great film, whatever, eight, nine years ago called 12 Years a Slave. 
and it's about uh, someone who I don't even believe he actually was a slave, but he was dragged into slavery. And Douglas, clearly, that was a risk. He, he had to eventually go to the United Kingdom and then through the money of various donations pay his former slave owner to get his freedom. And, and until he could do that, he was at continual risk in the United States of being dragged back to the slave states. And then we had the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, where people could go to other states, collect slaves, bring them back, and get paid for it, essentially be kind of a, a bounty hunter. Hmm. Uh, so courage is a huge – and courage takes us back to, to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, right? Because, yeah. because the hero's journey, for those who don't know, is, um, is extracted from the work of a mythologist named Joseph Campbell who actually went to Columbia, ran track at Columbia, and was going to get his doctorate in literature from Columbia, but he decided – that he had a different calling and he wanted to write more about all these different religions and philosophies and stories and narratives from different cultures. So he actually left the graduate English department, went upstate in New York, lived off some money he'd made as a jazz musician and wrote different publishers and said, can you send me these, these different books I'm interested in? He wrote a book called the hero with a thousand faces. And then George Lucas used that book when he made the first Star Wars, which propelled Campbell into great fame towards the end of his life. But it's this idea that there's this commonality in all these different myths, and it's about the need for the hero or the heroine to recognize they're being called to do something and step forward and have the courage to accept the call. Okay? Mm. Uh, and really, when you think about it, we're all doing that from the beginning of our life. I mean, when you... Exactly. Well, that's that's why that's why that whole idea was so powerful, right? Because he he studied all the different stories and myths, and all these stories and myths going back, uh, you know, thousands of years were essentially parallels to what happened in life. Some of them were real life. Some of them were adaptions of real life. Some of them were fantasy, but based on people's experience of life. Yeah. And. And across all the different cultures and across all the different religions, there's a there's that common theme that he discovered, and and that's because it's basically life. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. I love the way you put that. It's basically life. And yeah. he would argue, he would argue that that you know, if you hear the call to that adventure and you don't take it, you may really feel a sense of loss, right? You may later realize that some adventure was put in front of you and didn't take it. Now to get back to Ned Stark, look, he was called to an adventure, um, and he took it, and it all went terrible for him, right? So I do mm -hmm. think that, that we need to find some balance in our life of, of being you know, proactive, but also being aware of how to lead ourselves through those, those challenges so that, I mean, we can't control our fate, of course, but we can do the best we can to confront yeah. adversity and, and succeed. And to me, as you just said, that's life, right? I mean, if we're gonna yeah, if we're right. gonna accept the adventure, then let's do it. And if we're not, we better ask ourselves why not. What, you know, what yeah. We expect? Well, well, in the hero's journey, that there, there is, you know, there's the call to adventure, which in in Ned's case was the king saying, "Come down and be my right hand man." Um, in in your example earlier, it, it was, um, you know, that there's this other offer that somebody suggested you, or this other job opening that somebody suggested you might apply for so that's a call to adventure and and all the while um we we actually re our first response is no no i don't want change i to 
reject the call. So there is that step of rejecting the call. And it's always a good idea to really be aware of that and say, you know, that isn't necessarily the end of it. You know, the decision might be right to say, no, that's not my calling uh, right now or that's not my calling ever. But it's good to reflect on that and say, you know, am I am I just scared of yeah. taking the next step of moving forward, of getting outside of my comfort zone? And along the hero's journey, when you get beyond that and accept, uh, accept the call, then there's a whole lot of tests along the way that uh, make you question, make you question whether that might be the, the right, might have been the right decision. Yeah. And I felt that writing the win or die book was certainly a hero's journey, which, which by the way, that, that, that offer, that call to adventure came after the, you know, the other job, um, it wasn't a job offer. The suggestion that I apply to a job, uh, came a couple of years before. And I did think about it and it was easy for me. I had to think it through to your point. But it was easy for me to realize that wasn't the right call. For, that wasn't the right adventure. When I was offered the idea of writing this book, Win or Die, about Game of Thrones, I knew I had to do it. I mean, I knew it. And I mean, it, it was like, and I knew it was going to be hard. And But that's a good place to be when you're really excited about something mm. you want to do. Even if you know it's going to be hard, you go, well, it's going to be hard, but there's going to be energy because I'm excited. Yeah. I think that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, though, the being really clear about your own values. And and then when something like this comes up, you know, I, f I find that if if I can make a really quick decision there and say I'm really excited about this, even though it might be a bit scary, um, it it's aligns with so many of, of my values. And, and being really clear about the values enables you to actually make that quick decision. Yeah. Well, and I'll give you, I totally agree. And I'll give you kind of an example with the win or die book. Uh, I hadn't, you know, I'd seen the first episode of it and I thought it looked good. My wife didn't like it. And so we hadn't watched more than the first episode. Then when we were talking to the editor, I started reading the books. We started watching it. My wife became a huge fan. She read the books <laughs> twice, right? And, and if we were on camera, I'd show you how big and dense these books are. But yeah, yeah. Where, where I'm going with all that is that for me, the most exciting part was recognizing, you know, I loved Tolkien when I was a, a young mm. boy, right? I love, and I haven't been at all involved in any real epic fantasy type fiction in my, in my reading or in shows that I watch. So it was this sense that can I take all of these great leadership ideas that I've had the benefit of learning from my years at Columbia and can I apply them to this whole new thing? And can I do it in a way that fulfills the professors whose ideas I'm drawing on and the creative side of myself. And that for me was right there. Just, I was, I was so mm. excited. Right? And I needed that excitement because when it got hard, I needed the excitement to, to get me through all the parts that scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I love it. Um, and you, you brought up Tolkien. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Lord of the Rings and the, when I started researching and reading some of your articles and reading some of the book um, and learning about game of thrones i thought well there's a whole lot of parallels here with lord of the rings i don't know why i never really got into game of thrones so i looked at the books because at the moment it's not running on any of the uh, subscription services here in australia so i looked at the books and and i'm a big fan of audio books i thought oh, i'll just get the audio book well <laughs> it i think the first of 10 of the books goes for 48 hours, the audio narration. 
So I thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to do that before this uh, show airs. <laughs> something <laughs> well, I think something George, George R. R. Martin was also a huge fan of Tolkien, and he actually one of the quotes which I put up in front of my students is he said, "When I die, don't don't take me to heaven, just take me to Middle Earth." <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Now, I believe there's a new book coming out soon, and, and that's taken a little while to get um, underway. Yeah, I think he's he's been incredibly uh, prolific, but it's in a lot of different projects. And I, as a writer, I mean, you know, you see people that give him a hard time for not finishing the – I think there's two more that are expected in the Game of Thrones series. I feel like, hey, he's he's paid his price. He can do whatever he wants to do with his time, right? But um, he did just sign a big deal with HBO, and there's going to be possibly even more prequels than the one that's already uh, there's one that's already in production from his history of the Targaryen family before that was called Fire and Blood, I think. And uh, I just read today that there's a, a Broadway, West End, and Australia bound play that's being developed played in stage so um you know so i was i was driving my uh son to to school this morning i said it's gonna be really interesting to see you know how many generations from now are people still looking at game of thrones does it become kind of like a parallel to shakespeare you know and people yeah i don't i don't know but uh, it's a fascinating time to watch tv and to see the kinds of narratives that are happening out there hmm. all right well i'm just Booked at the time then, and uh, we've uh, gone on for quite a while. We've gotten pretty excited, so I think it's a good point now. I mean, there's lots of great leadership lessons there, and and I certainly encourage people to read the book, particularly if you have uh, watched Game of Thrones and you are familiar with the story. Uh, it'll probably make a lot more sense to you. But even if you haven't, I, I got a lot out of the book, not having ever watched. A single episode. Yeah, I, of I tried Thrones. to provide. I I tried to provide context. You know. Yeah, yeah. And make it make so it. There's certainly value there, and it's fascinating that you know there's so many lessons in leadership from these uh, fictional stories. So I think it's a good time now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round, and it's designed to help our audience who are primarily innovators and leaders in their field with some tips from your experience. So there's five questions, and hopefully you'll give us uh, really insightful answers that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Okay, let's go. So what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I think you have to be resilient. Um, I have a partnership with an actor, friend of mine, director now. We've been trying to sell a TV show for uh, about eight years. And I, when I think about the Game of Thrones book, everything that I've managed to achieve with some that has an element of innovation has required pushing up against a lot of people that say no, hearing a lot of no's, and then having resilience. And I think a component of that resilience is perseverance, is being able to kind of ask yourself over and over, is this something I really believe in? And am I willing to fight for it? And, and if you keep saying yes, and you keep believing in it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean I'm going to sell this TV show, right? But it does mean some doors are going to open. And the Game of Thrones book was a very similar. The editor came to me, but then there was a whole other journey involved, and we ended up back with the same editor. But everything that I've I'm publishing a novel this year that I started writing 20 years ago, right? And and I and it's an innovative novel. And I think sometimes things just take the time they're going to take, and you have to be resilient. That's the to me that's the word you focus on. If I'm going to be resilient. And um, 
I keep a picture of Frederick Douglass in front of me because to me, <laughs> he's a symbol of being resilient, of just yeah, yeah. not going to quit. You know, I'm going to fight or I'm going to fail and I'm not going to fail. So I'm going to fight. Hmm. Yeah. And, and again, coming back to the idea of values and beliefs and being really clear about, you know, what fits into those values and what do you feel strongly about? And so then you can, you can keep persevering on that path and also it helps with resilience i think yeah using the values to coach yourself to persevere and to be resilient that's a great that's a great point. Hmm. so what's what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas um for me it probably i'll i'll take you back to when i was out of graduate school and i was trying to write a novel about los angeles um that eventually was published after about five years of writing and effort. Um, I kept trying to look at that book from a fresh perspective and look at myself from a fresh perspective and not, and try to extract ideas from all around me, right? And so there's a professor at Columbia named Bill Duggan who talks very much about that, about how great creativity comes from pulling ideas off different shelves and then juxtaposing them. So, um, for me, a big idea at one point was, well, wait, I'm spending all this time in leadership and I'm spending all this time professionally fascinated in pursuing work in fiction. Can I bring these two together and can I create a new thing? So I'm often looking at things through that lens, like what can I take from over here that might fit from something over there and create something new? And, and again, this is a point I think Bill Duggan would agree with. You know, learning from your predecessors, like taking taking a good idea that someone used over here and seeing if that fits with another idea you have here and seeing if you can generate a whole new creation. Hmm. Yeah, I think the, the skill of connecting the dots between things that seem to be at first glance totally disparate is, is something that I think generates lots of ideas and lots of new things. So, and, and you know, clearly you've done that with the fiction writing and, and the poetry at some point and, and then the leadership um, education that you're doing. Well, an example that I often use in my teaching is George Lucas when he created the first Star Wars, right? So he had grown up with a lot of earlier TV shows from the 50s and 60s that had heroes. And then in the 70s, a lot of the movies were very much about anti-heroes. And he thought, wait a second, he was actually supposed to work on Apocalypse Now um, which was a very dark movie, and then he didn't. Mm. And he thought, wait a second, I'm going to take sort of the, the American involvement in this very dark moment of Vietnam, and then I'm going to connect it to the idea of kind of a space opera where there's heroism. And then he created something completely different. And he, and he, drew, ex he drew ideas from all over the place, from different experts. But by juxtaposing these things, very few people would actually look at Star Wars and think it has anything to do with Vietnam with our conflict with Vietnam in the 60s and 70s, right? But he was able to kind of bring some things together and create something that was very fresh at the time and transformed an industry, right? Mm. Yes, certainly did. All right. Now, um, what's the one resource you use most often? Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, for me, and I'm thinking back to when I was – first starting in, in both screenwriting and fiction, and I think it's very it's very true to this day. Um, again, we're not on camera, but in my home office, my wife's side of the desk is very clean and everything is very well ordered. 
on my side, there's just books falling all over. There's post-its with notes. There's magazine articles cut out. Um, and a Columbia professor named Eric Abramson co-wrote a book some years back called The Perfect Mess. The Perfect <laughs> Mess. And it was about this idea that often from mess comes the juxtaposition of things. It's a little bit in line with the Nugget idea, but, but from messiness can sometimes come great ideas. So for me, it's, it's often this balance of, you know, hiking in the desert, meditating, calming my mind, but then just surrounding myself by all kinds of books and magazines and, and shows and kind of diving into different things and just waiting for the ideas to percolate. I mean, at this point, I think I've, you know, I just turned 60 at the end of last year. I think I kind of my creativity approach uh, is true whether I'm writing fiction or working on the leadership book or or teaching leadership. I mean, a lot of what I do really, my my full-time job is teaching leadership. And I'm always trying to pull things together in different ways, um, kind of from a mess to create something that connects with uh, with business leaders and in in a new fresh way and creates a new experience for them. Hmm. Yeah, I love the that you know you do, one of the key parts there is that balance between calming your mind, but at the same time that that sort of disruptive nature of lots of different information that's just sort of laid out on your desk. Um, yeah. All right. Now, um, what's the best way to keep a client on track if you're working with somebody on on their leadership, on improving their leadership? So keep them on track. I mean, we're already working together on a project or I'm selling them on the project or both, I guess. Um, well, mainly you work. Yeah, I think yeah, when, we're, work, we're working, working together. With yeah. Well, I've spent a lot of my time in kind of conference centers and sort of on-site programs. Now, of course, over the last year, a lot of that's been done virtually, and I've even done hybrids where it's virtual. I mean, I'm in a classroom and it's virtual. Um, I know with with senior executives, I think a lot of it is, again, trying to make the work exciting to them with a recognition of their own, their own time constraints. And so trying to find ways to, I mean, in the executive education work, which, which I've done, through Columbia Business School, a lot of it in the past was very experience-oriented. So, you know, we're going to go and take a fencing class here with Columbia's fencing team, or we're going to go row with these world-famous uh, rowers who rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. We're going we're gonna to row for one day and kind of experience what we can extract from that. Um, in terms of work I've done individually as a consultant, in addition to doing it, with executive education programs. I'll do things like writing a story. Everyone will write a story, which is a very new experience for everyone in the class, where they're envisioning their own hero's journey and they're envisioning how they're going to achieve success in the future. So I think you can't, you can't just roll out boilerplate stuff and expect to win anyone's true transformational engagement. You've got to bring something unique to it. And it's got to be something unique that you that you believe in. Um, I know Bob Colhan, who we were talking about earlier, I mean, I, I've worked with him both independently as a consultant, and I worked with him, you know, at the Business School of Columbia, and he brings in improv. And, and that creates all of those things, create a little, a certain mm -hmm. amount of discomfort 
And I know because I've done them. In addition to, to teaching some of them, I've participated in some of them. And a little bit of discomfort is not a bad thing in learning because <laughs> it gets us out of that armchair mode where we sit back and we analyze everything as if we're, you know, 100% on top of everything, right? And learning sometimes yeah. you need to be shaken up. One thing I did, it's now been about 10 years, but I got pretty heavily into a lot of martial arts type stuff. And I remember thinking, you know, Hey, this is, this is nerve wracking, but this is also good for me because this is helping me to recognize how intense life can be. You know, so I try to bring some creativity and intensity to stuff to keep people connected. And then of course, you know, if it's, it's, uh, like I've got some consulting work now, it's got to fit with what they need. So you really need to be able to listen. You know, if you, mm. if you get on the phone and I can sometimes fall prey to this, if I get on the phone, 100% sure that I know what they need. That's not the right approach. I need to get on the phone and listen to what yeah. they need. They might yeah. not know what they need, but I I don't necessarily have the answer right away. We need to get there together and then something yeah. great can happen. Look at the world through their lens. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. There's um lots of you know, focus there on experience and, and innovation around that. And it occurred to me because you said it it helps to push people outside their comfort zone a little bit. I mean, if you think of the adult learning model, the um, the the idea where when somebody gets to the point of saying, oh, this is all too hard, I've, I just can't do this, it's all too hard, you say, that's great. Now you're in the learning mode because if it's too easy, you're not learning. And when it's when, uh, because basically you're ignoring the, the um, any lessons that come out of that. But if it's yeah. hard, you're really focused on, okay, what do I need to do? And, and I think, and I, I agree. And I think, and you remember it later when, and this is mm. true also for using fiction, right? I mean, someone later, one of my students later is going to be in an intense situation and they're going to flash on Sammy from what makes Sammy run. And they're going to flash mm. on Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones, right? And so, or you could be, you know, in a difficult moment in your organization where you're struggling to get alignment with your team and you suddenly remember the rowing or, you know, so it's, it's, it's the intensity of it can then bubble up later when you mm -hmm. need to lead yourself to then effectively lead other people. And I think part of that too, it doesn't always have to just be, and I mean, it's not, it's not just the experience of engaging with something that scares you, although there's an element of that that's very productive, but just. Um, I just completed a, a class with my executive MBA students about two months ago where we did a whole block week in five eight-hour days. So that's five eight-hour days of just talking to each other and sharing ideas and communicating back and forth. And a lot of that is just through honest communication. People start to learn so much about each other that it also shines a light and they learn about themselves. And they and that's an experience. That's an experience, right? So often just honest conversation, well facilitated around intense practical questions can build um, a great resource of knowledge in a person and with other colleagues. Hmm. Yeah, great. I love that. Love that whole approach. All right. Now, what final question of the buzz around, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Again, I, I feel like you, you have to be a true believer and do something that you really love. Um, hmm. that, that, that sense that it's a calling 
you know, and you may go through life and have a couple different callings, right? But that sense that, and you, and you, and you can't create that artificially. I mean, you have to, you have to kind of earn that, right? And, and if you're in the innovation space where you're trying to bring a new idea forward, um, you yourself might not even 100% know how it's going to come out, but you have to have that true believer of confidence that something magical um, is going to happen. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to hook other people. You're not going to be resilient. Um, you're not going to find your way to the to the great place that you're envisioning if you don't have that that belief, right? There's a great moment in Shakespeare and Love that movie. Um, with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow that won all those Academy Awards some years back. But I think it's Jeffrey Rush plays the producer, if I'm right. And at the beginning, they're like hanging his feet over these coals and they're, you know, threatening to torture him because he owes them money. Uh, he's the producer of these plays. And at some point they're saying, well, why do you think this play is going to happen? How do you think this is even going to come together? And he goes, it always does. It's magical. It always comes together. But I, I, I always have him in my mind when I'm trying to pursue something because I'm thinking, you know, it's not 100% rational. If it was 100% rational, everyone would have done it, right? Hmm. Does it mean you're going to get there? It doesn't mean you're going to get there. That's part of why it's a hero's journey. You know, it's are you going to yeah. take it? That's the thing. You've got to be in that space. Like, I believe I'm going to fight for it. 100,000 other people haven't done it. It might not work, but I'm in that space where I'm going to go for it. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And um, Shakespeare in Love is one that I have seen. <laughs> so I remember that scene. Yeah. It's a great movie. It's a, it's a great movie. Yeah. In, all right. Well, thanks, Bruce. This has been fabulous. Now, where can people reach out to you and say thanks for what you've shared, find out more about you, get a hold of the book Win or Die? Yeah. Um, well, my website is www.cravenleadership. So C R A V as in Victor E N leadership.com um, I'm also on LinkedIn for those that use Instagram and Twitter um, my handle is I have an old, old vintage mercury and the license plate is L-E-D-S-O-F-A lead sofa because it's a big old wide car that you know a family of five could live in so I'm on Instagram and Twitter at lead sofa yeah and I think through any of those you can find me and I'd love to hear from anyone and the book is uh, translated in Turkish, Russian, Serbian. Um, the English did the uh, paperback. Uh, the novel is here in the country. It's all on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, and if you do Audible or that sort of thing, I actually recorded the the audio, and that was that was it. That was an adventure, <laughs> but, but it was really fun. So um, anyway, I would yeah. love to hear your thoughts about the book, and just reach out to me if I can be help helpful in any way. Great. Well, we'll post all those links in the show notes so people can click straight through. Now, do you have any parting advice for our listeners as we wrap this up? Well, I, I, I feel like I've said probably a lot. Um, I, I think I certainly talked a lot. Let's hope that I've said a lot. Um, but I would, I would say that for me, one thing that is in my mind a lot, and maybe it does have to do with, you know, I'm 60 now and, and, to me, in many ways, that feels young. You know, our grandmother lived to be 101, and in many ways, that feels old. Uh, but one thing I, I do, I'm very aware of now, is that when I look back at my life, often when I trusted my instincts and I went after something really big, whether I succeeded or not, 
it's okay. I feel so good that I went after it. Um, and when I look back at my life and I think of the times when I treated people right, whether it was a friendship, a relationship, a professional relationship, I feel good about it. And if there's times when I feel like I could have, I remember the times when I feel I could have done a little more for people. So I often say that to my students is, you know, take the high road, treat people right, and just pursue the things that you're hungry to pursue. And, you know, if their lives are anything like mine, mm. I, I feel like I can live with my, what you might call failures. And uh, because I don't see them that way. I see them as the fact that I had the courage to fight for the things that mattered. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And and I think, it, you know, that I mean, I'm reflecting a lot on when have I treated people badly? And, you know, you go back to your younger days and you're impulsive and perhaps reactive. And and there were times when I have to say, you know, that wasn't the best way to do it. And, and so today I'm a lot more conscious of that. So treating people right, really a big one, I think, for me. Yeah, for me too. And, and I, and I, I'm sure we, in the scope of the world, we were both probably pretty good people all the time. But I think it's, I think it's recognizing that taking the high road and treating people right is, is easier than having to decide if there's some other approach you should take. Right. Like, yeah. like I, thankfully, I think I usually did the right thing. And the times that I didn't, I still remember very clearly. And I think, so when I'm talking to people and offering my, you know, mentoring advice it's usually just treat people right and just fight for what you care about and don't mm. spend any time trying to decide if that might be the perfect moment to be manipulative you know just yeah that's right well i was just i was just going to say uh, being manipulative and and lying and then maintaining the lies i think is costs so much energy it's much easier just to be transparent and honest and do the right thing yeah beautifully said and i totally agree <laughs> All right. Finally, who else should I get on this podcast and why? Well, I'm going to send you a, a couple of different thoughts. I wrote out to uh, my colleague at Columbia University, Paul Ingram, and he he said absolutely he'd love to do it. Um, I last uh, last fall I had a young novelist um, sit in on my MBA class named Abigail Rosewood, and she wrote a book that came out uh, a couple of years ago called If I Had Two Lives. And I found it really interesting to bring a young novelist into a group of graduate students and have her talk about the entrepreneurial elements of trying to pursue her vision, right? So here I am, you know, much later in my, in my arc of my life talking about it. And I think having someone who's earlier, younger in that stage talking about it could be really great for you. Um, and then I have a few other Aussies I, I've got to track down and communicate with them, <laughs> but I'll shoot, I'll shoot you their names because... You know, you got to have some Aussies on there because they're good. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. So we'll um, get in touch with Paul and Abigail and get an intro from you and see whether we can line up times where we can bring them on the show as well. I think they, they would both be wonderful. Paul's a world-class uh, professor and teacher, and my success is probably 60% due to just his support and energy and, and mentoring and teaching. All right. Well, thanks for that. And thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us so generously today. I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed our conversation. And um, I, I was a little apprehensive, not having really paid any attention at all to Game of Thrones that um, I'd get meaning out of that. But when I when I read the book, I thought, no, there's, there's 
plenty of good information here that I can take away, even though I haven't seen Game of Thrones. So I encourage the listener to go and read the book, check it out. And uh, even if you haven't watched Game of Thrones, um, it might actually lead you to to um, become a binge watcher. I, I, said, I said to Bruce before, I said, um, you might be responsible for me binge watching Game of Thrones now. So, yes, uh, all the best for the future, Bruce, and let's stay in touch. Thanks, Jurgen. That was a wonderful pleasure, and I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that really engaging and insightful conversation with Bruce and took something away from his episode. Bruce shared so much value in the stories we discussed today the concept of shared values and not assuming that others who share your values have the same priorities. They were the ones that stood out for me. And of course, the idea of service-based leadership. I'd love to know what you took away from Bruce's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Bruce Craven. That is B-R-U-C-E. C-R-A-V-E-N, all lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Bruce Craven. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Bruce, as well as links to the Craven Leadership website, to the book Win or Die, Leadership Secrets from Game of Thrones, to Bruce's social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in today's conversation. Now, if you like this episode, Please don't keep it to yourself. Share it with two other people, at least two other people, who it might help. And tag me in on that share so that I can reach out to you and thank you. Bruce suggested that we have a conversation with Columbia Business School professors Paul Ingram and Bill Duggan, as well as novelist Abigail Rosewood on future InnovaBuzz podcast episodes. So Paul, Abigail and Bill Keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Bruce Craven. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast. We've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including writing and editing coach Daphne Gray-Grant and business operations architect Sidel Stewart. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.